Good morning. Scott Luton here with you on this edition of This Week in Business History. Welcome to today's show. On this program, which is part of the Supply Chain Now family of programming, we take a look back at the upcoming week, and then we share some of the most relevant events and milestones from years past. Of course, mostly business-focused, with a little dab of global supply chain, and occasionally we might just throw in a good story outside of our primary realm. So I invite you to join me on this look back in history to identify some of the most significant leaders, companies, innovations, and perhaps lessons learned in our collective business journey. Now, let's dive in to this week in business history. Hey, hey, and thanks for joining us. I'm your host, Scott Luton, and welcome to today's edition of This Week in Business History for the week of December 13th, 2021. Hey, before we get started, I've got to share a recent experience with you. I've spoken about the legendary Dr. Lonnie Johnson, a famed inventor and entrepreneur, on an earlier episode of This Week in Business History. You may recall that just one of his countless patents and inventions was his creation of the world's biggest selling water toy of all time. That would be the super soaker. But other inventions have made big impacts in fields such as energy and space exploration. Dr. Johnson is truly a living legend. So you can imagine my immense excitement when just a few weeks ago, I was surprised by my friend Kevin L. Jackson by the opportunity to not only tour Dr. Johnson's Atlanta laboratory, but also meet the professor which is a nickname that Dr. Johnson has had since his high school years growing up in Mobile, Alabama. Nowadays, Dr. Johnson's laboratory also doubles as a STEM center where young people from all walks of life come to explore their passion and interest in robotics, esports, and more. Hey, I'd encourage you to learn more at their website, johnsonstem.org. Okay. So for today, I've dug into the story of two aspects of business history. I'll be talking about several iconic leaders and their respective companies that I bet you're familiar with, but I'm going to be sharing a few details about their story that I bet you don't know. So buckle up as this is going to be informative and a lot of fun. Hey, before we move forward, if I could ask for just one simple favor. I sure would appreciate it if you would subscribe to the show and leave us a review wherever you get your podcast from. Hey, thanks for your support, and let's dive right in. All right, on the first half of our show here today, we're talking about Colonel Harlan David Sanders and the company that he's best known for, Kentucky Fried Chicken. On December 16, 1980, Colonel Sanders passed away in Louisville, Kentucky, at the age of 90 years old. The title he was known for, Colonel, had no military connection, but it was an honorific title that was bestowed upon Sanders by the Commonwealth of Kentucky. You may not know that other recipients of the Kentucky Colonel Honorable Designation include Muhammad Ali, Walt Disney, Whoopi Goldberg, Pope John Paul II, and many, many others. All the others just didn't leverage their title as much as one Colonel Sanders did. Back to KFC, which has such an interesting story. Born in Henryville, Indiana, 
Colonel Sanders tried his hand at a wide array of professions to make a living prior to chicken, including a blacksmith's helper, a fireman, a lawyer, a life insurance salesperson, even a tire salesman from Michelin. But in 1930, Sanders would get involved in the gas station business and would eventually begin to offer food at a Shell Oil Company station he was running. In 1940, at the age of 50 years old, Sanders arrived at what he thought was the perfect recipe for frying chicken in a pressure cooker, a recipe that he was eventually going to package and attempt to franchise in the next few years. Colonel Sanders didn't let his age get in the way of pursuing fame and fortune. In his 60s, he traveled the country visiting restaurants and cooking chicken, trying to sell and franchise that recipe. Many nights would find him sleeping in the back of his car as Sanders was essentially living off his savings and about 105 bucks a month from Social Security. But as fate would have it, Colonel Sanders would meet one Pete Harmon upon visiting the town of Salt Lake City, Utah in 1952. At the time, Pete was running a great restaurant named the Do Drop Inn, as in please do drop in. It was a hamburger and fries joint, as was the case with just about all fast food businesses at the time. My my, how things have changed, right? Colonel Sanders and Pete Harmon would agree to a business partnership that would forever change the course of the restaurant and fast food industry. Harmon agreed to become Sanders' first franchisee. Now as part of their work together, the duo had to build a system which could then be reliably and consistently sold and operated anywhere. Harmon would make big contributions to the KFC we know today, including the idea for the bucket meal, the motto, it's finger licking good, and even the name itself, as Kentucky Fried Chicken is what Peter Harmon would change his restaurant's name to based on a suggestion from his sign painter. From that one location, the former Dew Drop Inn would be the newly named Kentucky Fried Chicken in Salt Lake City, Utah. Pete Harmon himself would go on to operate more than 200 KFCs in four states. In fact, from the time of Colonel Sanders meeting Harmon to just 11 years later in 1963, KFC would grow to over 600 franchises. In that short amount of time, it would become the largest fast food operation in the United States. In 1963, Colonel Sanders would meet John Y. Brown Jr. at a political breakfast. Sanders, then in his early 70s, and with no family heirs to the business, would convince Brown to buy the business for $2 million at the time, which is about $16 million in 2020 dollars. Brown and his partners would make changes to enhance the scalability of KFC, including moving the restaurant from a dine-in concept to more of a traditional takeout model. Just eight years later, Brown would sell his interest in KFC for $284 million. Hey, not too bad on a $2 million investment. And now, some 69 years after Colonel Sanders would strike the first franchise deal with Pete Harmon, KFC has over 24,000 locations in over 140 countries. A few more fun facts about KFC. 
It was the first Western fast food chain to open in China in 1987. And it is now China's largest chain with more than 4,500 outlets across the country. Along these lines, KFC has learned to localize its menus based on various parts of the world. In island countries, you can get fried seafood at KFC, often known as the Colonel's Catch. Spaghetti is on the menu at some Indonesian locations. And in India, KFC offers a chickpea burger. And finally, in Japan, KFC and Christmas traditions go hand in hand. The restaurant offers a highly popular Christmas dinner, which includes cake and get this, champagne. Champagne, Kelly Barner. And that sells for about 40 bucks. Hey, different strokes for different folks, as I always like to say. What a remarkable story for a truly global icon that got its start on the highways and byways of the United States by a highly motivated entrepreneur that refused to abandon his grand vision. Now, for the second part of our show here today on This Week in Business History, we're going to be celebrating a cherished holiday. Yes, National Ice Cream Day. December 13th is known each year as National Ice Cream Day. Hey, you learn something new every day. Now, when I think of ice cream, I immediately think of one of my all-time favorites, Cherry Garcia, made by the legendary Ben & Jerry's. Now, to truly understand the Ben & Jerry's company, though, you've got to start with, well, Ben & Jerry. I'm talking about the founders, Ben Cohen and Jerry Greenfield. The two met in the seventh grade at Merrick Avenue Middle School in New York's Long Island. In fact, it's been said that neither Ben nor Jerry were terribly excited about running a mile during gym class. So as they lagged back from the rest of the runners, there their friendship began. After both men's collegiate journeys, they reunited and discussed business ideas. At the time, which was about 1977, Ben Cohen was not really successful at selling his pottery, and Jerry Greenfield was not really successful at getting into medical school. Initially, the plan was for the duo to open a bagel shop, but the machinery proved to be way too expensive. So Ben and Jerry's invested in a $5 course from Penn State University that trained students on the fine art of ice cream making. Interestingly enough, a wide variety of famed ice cream companies have attended that same course from Penn State to include students representing companies such as Baskin Robbins, Blue Bell Creamery, Haagen-Dazs, International Dairy Queen, and many others. Currently, Dr. Robert F. Roberts leads the legendary Department of Food Science at Penn State, which runs the popular ice cream course, which got its start way back in 1925. It's important to note that in the late 70s and early 80s, gourmet ice cream was a very niche and small industry. The biggest player at the time was Haagen-Dazs, but the gourmet ice cream market was picking up steam. Thus, ice cream, it was to be for Ben & Jerry's. They each contributed $4,000 to the business with Ben Cohen's dad covering half of his and they got another $4,000 from a bank loan. And on May 5th, 1978, after relocating to Vermont and converting an old gas station into a ice cream store in Burlington, Ben & Jerry's opened for business. In those early years, 
It wasn't only about selling ice cream, which Jerry was in charge of. But Ben would make crepes, soups, and other food, which is amazing, frankly, because Ben Cohen suffers from severe anosmia, a lack of sense of smell. Can you imagine how difficult it must be to cook with no sense of smell? By the shop's first year anniversary in 1979, gone were all menu items except ice cream. That's not to say that every ice cream was successful in those early days. For example, there have been wild rumors about a horrible batch of rum raisin ice cream that refused to be tamed or liked by hardly anyone. But on the whole, Ben and Jerry's in Burlington, Vermont was successful and they celebrated their first anniversary by giving away free ice cream cones, a practice that the company still embraces decades later. As a big next step for the fledgling business, Ben and Jerry would rent a separate facility in Burlington to give them space to produce and pack their ice cream in pints. This would allow the young company to sell and distribute to retailers across the area. Making the ice cream was perhaps the easy part, but selling and creating a new distribution model would be something new for the duo to master. But to start with, they'd pack out Ben Cohen's Volkswagen Squareback wagon, and off Ben went to sell and deliver pints to grocery stores and mom and pop stores across the area. Now I imagine he had to move pretty fast so as not to have his inventory melt right there on the road. Those pints in new channels would certainly lead to more and more awareness and new demand for Ben & Jerry's ice cream. The first franchise Ben & Jerry's would open in 1981 in Shelburne, Vermont, and growth would continue. In 1984, gourmet ice cream market leader haagen and its parent company Pillsbury, well, they would get together and attempt to limit Ben & Jerry's distribution network in an alleged attempt at keeping Ben & Jerry's off the store shelves so as to stifle the competition from the upstart brand. This would lead to a popular and successful campaign by Ben & Jerry's humorously entitled, What's the Dead Boy Afraid Of? Now that campaign would eventually lead to 400 people a week calling in to the aptly named Doughboy Hotline, all complaining of lack of access to the product and ultimately leading to Pillsbury backing off from its efforts to keep Ben and Jerry's off the store shelves. Growth would continue and new ice cream flavors would originate with the best experts of all, their customers. In 1986, Jane Williamson would suggest a flavor entitled Cherry Garcia to be named after the Grateful Dead lead singer, Jerry Garcia. That flavor, one of my favorites, as I mentioned earlier, would go on to be one of the most popular and longest running ice cream flavors in company history. Ben and Jerry would send eight pints of Cherry Garcia to Jerry Garcia, who evidently was fond of the new flavor. Jerry Garcia's publicist would offer his response as, quote, as long as they don't name a motor oil after me, it's fine with me, end quote. Ben and Jerry's continued to grow and gain market share with new incredibly popular flavors like chocolate chip cookie dough ice cream, one of its best all-time sellers, and one that also came 
from an anonymous customer who scribbled the idea on a store suggestion board. In April 2000, almost 22 years from the founding of the company, Ben & Jerry's would be sold to food giant Unilever. Although the company still uses Ben & Jerry's likeness and images, Ben Cohen and Jerry Greenfield are not involved in the business in any way. But the 2000 transaction did include a way that Ben & Jerry could maintain their legacy as Unilever agreed to establish an independent board of directors to continue Ben & Jerry's commitment to its social mission, brand integrity, and product quality. Well, that just about does it for this week's episode of This Week in Business History. I hope you've enjoyed today's show that focused on two absolutely delicious journeys of wildly successful brands, especially with an emphasis on some of the lesser-known aspects of both Kentucky Fried Chicken and Ben & Jerry's. With that said, we wish you a wonderful week ahead. Hey, this is Scott Luton urging you to do good, give forward, and be the change that's needed. And we'll see you next time right back here on This Week in Business History. Thanks, everybody.